Welcome everyone to another episode of the podcast. We're going to keep today quick and sweet for the intro. As always, please make sure you follow me on Instagram at Felix.Levine. Follow me on TikTok, Felix Levine. My YouTube channel, you can watch all video versions of every single podcast there. And let's get into today's fantastic episode. I'm super excited to have him on the show. I've been trying to get him on for a couple years now. He is an entrepreneur. He's an investor. He's really a, a lifelong learner, and I think that the way he speaks and educates people on a lot of different complex subjects is fantastic. Please welcome Anthony Pomp Pompliano. And we're live. Pomp, thank you so much for, for coming in. Um, you know, it's funny. I've been following you for a couple years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you're one of those people, actually alongside Andrew Schultz, that were at the top of my list when I built out this place mm-hmm. that I wanted to get in studio. Um, so we're one for two there. And uh, I appreciate Andrew, you. Andrew, let's go. Dude, Andrew, you're coming next, man. And you know what's funny about Andrew? I hit him up when I was... 19 or 20 and i said come on pod and he had responded he said i promise we'll do it one day so all right we'll get there um he's a man of his word he'll do it if he, he is a man of his word and he's in new york we both went to uc santa barbara for a little bit of time so there's a lot of similarities there but uh, i appreciate you coming and thank you for for taking the time man of course so i told you a few seconds ago is there a little tidbit a little story a little something the world doesn't know about you from what's already out there yeah um when I was a kid, if you had asked me like what I wanted to be when I grew up, uh, there was a period of time, maybe a couple of years, where I would have told you a lawyer, which sounds insane compared to what I do now. And it's probably the least likely thing that I actually would have ended up doing. Uh, but I really enjoyed, I think, uh, arguing and debating. Um, and then also uh, this idea of like facts and like actually getting to the truth regardless of uh, people's opinion. Um, and so if you look at a lot of things in my life, uh, I probably actually did end up incorporating a lot of that. Um, so, you know, when I'm on television debating people and things like that, like growing up in a large family of all boys, you just talk shit all the time. And so like that probably helped. Um, but also like being able to formulate an argument and be able to really convince people of, you know, A or B, um, is important. And then one of the things that's been pretty interesting over the years is as I've, uh, met a lot of people or, uh, read books, listened to uh, folks on podcasts, uh, there's a very large portion of successful entrepreneurs that actually wanted to be lawyers as well. Mm-hmm. Some even went as far as going to law school and then not going and practicing law. Um, and I do think that uh, there's this very interesting uh, kind of dynamic uh, that it teaches you how to think, teaches you how to communicate. Um, I never went to law school, but I, I do think that uh, having a desire to do it, I probably lent myself more to figuring out, you know, if you are going to go down this path, what exactly would it entail? Um, and so, you know, most people probably don't know that, but, uh, but but there's a lot of similarities, I think, to what I ended up doing. Well, I think one of the things that I particularly admire about your work in general is the way that you're able to synthesize and explain and use the the right words and vocabulary to kind of, for lack of a better word, dumb down more complex co- concepts into uh, more understandable terms. Have you always had that ability or is this something that as you've been on TV and as you've done podcasts uh, has improved over over time? I don't think it has that much to do with communication. I think the communication style is a byproduct of actually understanding what you're talking about. Um, if you were to go down the street and ask people about many of the topics they talk about on a daily basis, most of them just don't know what they're talking about. Right. And so therefore they hide behind big words, um, you know, very complex uh, um, kind of language or uh, even uh, philosophies. Right. Uh, you'll see people on Twitter who tweet these things and 
to the layman's eye, you're like, that sounds really smart. And if you just ask yourself, like, what the fuck is this person saying? <laughs> they don't understand what they're talking about. Um, and so there's the old, you know, adage of like, uh, if I had more time, I would have made it shorter. Uh, very similar, I think, is if you actually understand what you're talking about, you can boil it down to the essence of what that actual topic is about or, or what the argument is. Um, and then you use simple language because it expresses the mastery, right? If you ever talk to someone right. and they describe something very simply, you're like, okay, I, I get it. And obviously, you know what you're talking about because you explained it to me. Um, and so I think it's less about me or a communication style. It's literally just, we have this like pandemic across the world of people talking about shit that they don't have any clue about. And you see it when they try to describe it to someone else, it's very hard for them to teach other people about it. What's your process when it comes to mastering a concept or an idea so that you can then synthesize it in a very Lehman's or simplistic term? A lot of tabs open <laughs> on the computer. Um, you know, I, I think I just have this like a neat intellectual curiosity to just keep looking for more information. And um, if there's one downside to that, you know, I can spend hours looking at something and, you know, you find the first topic and then all of a sudden there's footnotes or there's hyperlinks or whatever. And next thing you know, you've read, you know, 20 different sources about things that are even related to it. Uh, the second thing is because of the podcast and in my experience there, uh, I'll go and I'll try to find people. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty effective at getting them on the phone or getting them to do a podcast or even just meeting up. Uh, and I pretty much just berate them with questions until they tell me to stop. Um, and I'm unapologetic about it. You know, if I'm at dinner with a group of people, I'll literally just say, hey, I, I don't understand this. Could you explain it to me? And I'll just start firing questions. And what you find is like people actually want to talk about it. They want to debate about it. They would love for you to say, well, why do you guys do it this way? Why don't you do it this way? And, and so there's a kind of win-win uh, scenario there. Um, and then the last thing I think is just uh, the broader you go, the more you see similarities. And so I've been very cognizant of not going super deep on any one thing and, and at the expense of understanding other things. And so sure, I have deep knowledge or expertise on certain things, but it's always that plus other things. And when you have that more well-rounded view of the world, I think that it helps. I think what's interesting, I was listening to you uh, on another podcast talk about, you know, in high school, Perhaps, you know, maybe you're not reading the book, so you're not doing the work. Um, and now you are. And now if you were to go back to high school, I think the quote was more or less that you'd be in the front of the class asking all the questions. At what point did that switch for you in your life where you uh, had this desire, this just tremendous desire of curiosity and, and learning? I was always curious and I was always learning. It just, I didn't want to learn the shit they were telling me. To learn, right. right? Um, it, it's funny, like I would go and I remember in high school, uh, I mean, just long, long drawn out arguments with my parents of you're getting C's. Why won't you get better grades? You're not a moron. Like the grades don't reflect, you know, kind of uh, what we think your intelligence is. And it just boiled down to, although I couldn't articulate it at the time, like I just don't care. Right. right. And, and as a teenage kid, like you can't really say that to your parents and mean it. Like you may say it as an offhand comment. Um, but I was learning about a bunch of other stuff and I would sit for hours and debate and argue and do all these things on these other topics. And then every once in a while, there would be a class that would overlap with my interest and I would get an A. And my parents would be like, like, we know you can do this. Like, what are you doing? And so I think um, one of the uh, uh, crescendo moments of this uh, tension in my like uh, academic career was I got a C in a film class. <laughs> and I literally remember coming home and like being like, damn, that's bad, yeah. right? And my dad just being like, are you fucking kidding me, right? Like, like you literally watch movies in the class and then have to talk about them, you got a C. And I just was like, yeah, but it's, you know, stupid movies. Like, I, I just don't care. Right. Um, and so, uh, 
you contrast that with uh, there was a class about um, American government and, and less like politics and more just like, hey, how does the country built and, and you know how do we govern ourselves and things like that? I got an A in it. And a couple of years later, uh, one of my brothers uh, who's younger than me, his friends basically said to him and, and he relayed it to me that the teacher had enjoyed it so much that uh, on one of the questions of the test, I was one of the multiple choice options, <laughs> right? So like, how do you balance that? It's, it's literally just like, are you interested or are you not? And so now I, I've got a young child and I think a lot about like, who cares what we want her to learn, right? How do we just figure out what is she interested in? And like, just go full speed at that. And my guess is that she'll probably end up being more intelligent, better read, you know, kind of uh, more prepared for the world doing that than sitting in a room being told you have to learn this thing that you don't care about. First of all, congratulations on being a, a newborn dad. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I was I wanted to bring that up uh, a little bit later, but while we're on the topic, how will you, based off of your experience, approach the um, the raising and education of your child? Because I think you also have very r real and concrete opinions on whether it's the education system, what to learn, how to learn, um, and how. Do you guys intend as as a as a family to to implement that when it comes to to the education of of your newborn? I think the best way to think about it um, is uh, there's a book Clayton Christensen wrote called How You Measure Your Life, and in it, one of the things he talks about is outsourcing the raising of your child to somebody else. And he's not talking about just nannies or babysitters or things like that. He's talking about many parents uh, either because they have to, right? If you're in an economic situation where you have to work two jobs or very long hours or, um, you know, both parents are working and not getting home till late at night. You know, there, there's millions of Americans that are in this situation. You have to outsource the raising of your child in a certain number of hours right. to somebody else. And sometimes, unfortunately, you don't have a choice, right? And so the environment they grow up in is actually really, really important. There's studies now that show uh, the zip code you grow up in can determine how wealthy you're gonna be. It's like one of the single highest correlation points. And so by simply moving from a low income zip code to a high income zip code and the parent doing nothing else, yeah. the kid has a better shot and it's just environment. And so then there's some parents who they have the economic means to help make sure that the kid goes to a school of their choosing, or maybe that it has certain sports or after school activities, friends that they hang out with, um, you know, uh, coaches and adults that they interact with and the parents don't care. And so, you know, I was recently talking about this idea that um, all this rise of artificial intelligence is going to bring about these personalized tutors. If you go mm -hmm. back in history, one-on-one -on -one tutoring is the single greatest way to learn. Right. And sometimes it was a parent teaching a child. Sometimes it was a professional teacher teaching a, a child. Um, I recently learned that Oxford, I didn't understand this, but I guess Oxford, they basically have classes of one or two students per teacher. And so they have big lecture halls and, and things that you'll go to, but one of the most elite schools in the entire world understands that student to teacher ratio is really important. And so when you go and you look at artificial intelligence, that there's a number of people who have done it. I'm an investor in a company called Synthesis that's built one of these um, kind of personalized tutors. So a student can get on and talk with and interact with basically a personalized tutor done at scale. And so the ramifications of displacing teachers, the ramifications of increasing education, those are all pretty well covered and documented right. and people are excited about. But one of the downsides to this that people aren't talking about is what happens when we don't have an eight hour a day babysitting service right. for children. Parents can't rely now on seven o'clock, seven thirty, eight o'clock. The bus comes and picks them up, and I got to be back to pick them up at three, three thirty, four o'clock. What what are we gonna as a society do with millions of kids and now all of a sudden don't have yeah. babysitters? 
And so these are some of the ramifications of technology, but it does go back to it's a net positive because teaching the kids, getting them more educated, having them be accelerated more from an academic standpoint is worth it, even if there's trade-offs like, hey, we got to solve this other problem around childcare and kind of the quote unquote, you know, uh, school system as a babysitter. Um, and, and so I think that there's a lot of change happening, but ultimately it drives back to history got it right. Like one-on-one yeah. -on -one tutoring is probably the single best thing that you can do uh, in terms of learning. What were the conversations like with your wife when it, and you probably still have them every day on the decisions that you're going to make when it comes to the education of of your child and how do they how do they what do they look like we haven't made uh concrete decisions yet you know, our child's two years old right so we've got a little bit of time um but i'm probably a little bit more comfortable uh doing things however i think are best and like who cares what anyone <laughs> you know thinks and and um uh, maybe a little bit of that like contrarian nature. Uh, I've just done it enough times where I literally just don't care. I don't even think twice that somebody may judge it. Right. Um, I think she's more a little bit socially aware that like, hey, uh, the way that you school, care for uh, and treat your child, there's like a social norm. Right. And if you don't fit into that, like people will kind of be like, what are you doing? Um, and so the conversation really is just like, how much do you care about like the social norms versus the education to her credit? it's the education, right? Like we're, we're very much aligned on like, how do you educate someone? And so I've got a lot of friends with kids and, and I'm fortunate enough to, you know, have them tell me what they did, what were the pros, what were the cons? And again, it just goes back to uh, the environment. And, you know, if you look at what Clayton had written, he basically was saying, if you outsource the raising of your child to other people, there's things like one plus one equals two, you know, A, B, C, D, uh, they have to learn that stuff at some mm -hmm. point, they probably will. But actually what you're outsourcing is morals, is ethics, is decision-making, right? And if you are someone who thinks that that stuff is important, then it's probably helpful for you to be actively involved. Um, and so that's hard, especially when you have ambitious, hardworking, um, you know, kind of parents that really want to accomplish the things that they've set for themselves. Um, but if you talk to most parents, like, their kid being successful is a pretty important, right. you know, kind of goal, if you will, in their life. And so um, it's kind of like not what you say, it's what you do. And you can look at the actions of people and the more outsourcing that happens, I think that is probably, um, you know, we'd be better off if the parents were more involved. You've talked about being happy and where you're at right now, you feel happy, which I think is amazing. And, and, and I think honestly is when I heard you, the ways that you talked about it too, it almost goes under the radar that people kind of skip out on like asking themselves if they're happy or not. When do you feel like you hit a point where you could sit down and say, Pomp, I'm happy? I think I always was like inherently happy, right? It's kind of like optimist versus pessimist. If you're an optimistic person, you probably right. tend to be happier uh, just naturally because you see the good in everything, um, even when things are going bad. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think there's really two things that fed into that. One is uh, the ability to say, like, I don't care about the norm, right? And so whether for better or worse, a lot of people, they just don't have that innately kind of wired into them. And maybe that's nature, maybe that's nurture, I'm not sure. Um, but a lot of people really, really care what the rest of society thinks about. That's why they go to a certain school. That's why they get a certain job. That's why they do certain activities. And I've always just had the mentality, if I don't want to do it, I'm not doing it. And sometimes it hurts me, right? Sometimes it's actually a negative thing to do and, and kind of approach things that way. But it's just always, that's how I've been. Um, I, I talk about it as like this high disagreeableness where if somebody says, hey, we should do X and I don't want to, I can't help myself. I just say like, no, 
I think we should do this other thing, right? And so you can imagine uh, uh, being married to right. me, right? <laughs> and stuff is, is difficult at times, I'm sure. Um, at, at the same time, though, I, I think that it's a self-belief or a confidence in a skill set, right? And, and I've always told my wife, if you took me tomorrow and you basically took every single thing away from me and you put me in a country where I didn't even know the language, I think that within five or 10 years, I would build everything back and bigger. And it's because of a skill set. Right, and, and you, once you start to understand that skill set and you have confidence that you can employ it, the industry doesn't matter, the country doesn't matter, the language doesn't matter, none of this. But it is really hard to get to that point. And I don't think there was one day where I was just like, oh cool, I got the skill set. But I can look back throughout my life and see there was all these things that I was doing that eventually was helping me to build the skill set. And so a lot of times I look at today and, and, and I talked with this about, you know, young founders all the way to my wife. And I say, what you're doing today is just practice for what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And if you always keep that in mind, it's look around. What, what skills are you learning? What are the things that you go through that you can take away? What were the good things from that that I want to replicate? And what were the bad things? What are the lessons learned? And the more that you do that, what you start to do is accelerate learning. You also accelerate the self-belief that you're building that skill set. And if people in their 30s knew what they would be doing in their 20s, they'd be shocked, right? People in their 40s would be right. shocked in their 30s. And so it really is like just practice for the next thing, no matter how important you think it is, how much you think this is the big leagues, almost always it's just practice for the next thing. You talk about the skill set. If you had to describe this skill set to somebody, how do you describe your skill set? I don't think it's my skill set. I think it's just the skill set of an entrepreneur, right? And it's the ability to identify a problem and solve it. And like at the end of the day, if you can do that, you will figure out how to make money, have freedom, uh, you know, do the things you wanna do, get the things that you want. All those other things are kind of like byproducts, but ultimately it's just, can you identify actual problems? Not bullshit, you know, kind of fluffy things, but things that people fundamentally feel pain when they're experiencing. And are you able to figure out how to thoughtfully solve a problem? And if you can do those two things, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Doesn't matter again, industry, language, um, you know, geography, uh, resources, any of that stuff. If you can figure out how to do that, then you can build businesses. And if you can build businesses, I believe that that is the single greatest skill set you can have because not only can you impact the people around you, but it can let you live the life that you want to live. When what is the most common question that young entrepreneurs ask you? Can I have money? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, it, in most regards. Uh, I think most founders, there's two components that they're trying to figure out. And, and maybe I'm gonna uh, cut out or carve out specifically the ones that end up being successful. The ones who aren't successful, like what the questions they ask almost aren't relevant, right? But the ones who end up being successful, I think it's usually some version of what do I not know, right? They, they recognize that whether it's me or many, many other people who are drastically more successful than me, um, I'm going through this for the first time. What do I not know? And there's one founder specifically I'm thinking about. He's built an amazing business. He's gone from zero to $15 million in annualized revenue in less than 18 months, right? I mean, this thing is absolutely taking off uh, from a financial perspective. Every single time I talk to him, uh, regardless, whether it's fundraising, hiring, organizational structure, uh, scaling, uh, any conversation, he will make some mention to this is the first time I'm doing this, so I want to make sure I'm doing it right. Right, And the self-awareness it takes to understand that you, you don't know the answers, right? That, that people have the experience and you can take their experience and apply their lessons so that you don't have to go through the pain they went through, uh, I think takes a level of maturity that, that's a, a really positive sign. The other thing is the best founders, they have an ask. 
And so usually what ends up happening is people in a normal uh, kind of relationship, they want to meet someone and, they, and and not having an ask is really powerful. And I agree with that, right. right? If you meet someone on the side of the street and you're like, hey, give me $5, they're like, dude, what the fuck, right? Like, who, why is that person asking me for something? If you're going somewhere and you're constantly asking people for things, it's somewhat of like this like social capital bank account and right. you, you've expended all of your right. social capital right. with everyone in your life. It's not a good position to be in, right? Um, you can take it to the other extreme. There's a lot of people who go around like counting all the favors they've done right. for people and they're like, I'm, I'm collecting. Yeah, yeah. It's also not a good way to live. <laughs> but but I think generally it's, it's well understood. Like don't ask people for other things all the time. Now for a founder though, you have an excuse. You are not asking. You are asking for your company. company yeah. And when you ask for your company, you are doing your employees right. You're doing your investors right. You're doing your users right, right? And so it's your job to do this. And so when I meet with people who I walk away and I'm usually pretty impressed with, they're very clear in what those asks are. It could literally be, hey, will you invest? It could be, can you introduce me to something? It could be, can you help me think through this problem? It could be, hey, do you know so-and-so uh, or somebody who works at this organization? Whatever the ask is, it's very clear what they're trying to do. And it's not a stupid ask. It's not, hey, can you go grab me lunch? Right. It's right. not, hey, can you introduce me to that random person that eh, maybe there's something there? They usually are able to say something to the effect of, hey, we are trying to get more customers in this vertical. We've identified the four top companies there. We see on LinkedIn you're connected to these two people. Do you know them well enough so that you can introduce me? By the way, I've sent you an email that you can simply forward along that'll make it easy for you. For somebody like me, how do I say no? right? You're just like, of course, I want to help you. And because you have a clear ask, you've done a bunch of the work, you know that it's going to be valuable, you can tie it back to your business objectives, of course. And so I think that those are like two big ones that a lot of founders who end up not being successful, they're kind of just like lackadaisical about it, right? And, and so they end up, you know, kind of getting lackadaisical uh, results. What kind of advice do you have for young people that want to be more in your position, where it's now being the investor, being the successful entrepreneur, um, building a brand at different levels. What do you almost? What would you have advised yourself when you were when you were twenty three years old to to get to the point that you're at today? The first thing is you got to not give a single fuck what anybody else thinks, right? One of the biggest limiting factors in life is everyone is worried about what everyone else is thinking. Right. And not only are they probably not thinking about you, but even more importantly is their opinion doesn't fucking matter, yeah. right? And so if you go throughout history and look at successful entrepreneur or successful investor after one after another, you will find that they usually did something that they were laughed at, that they were mocked at, people thought they were insane, that they were dumb, that they were, you know, lost their minds. And that is ultimately where doing something different is then followed by being right. And so this idea of doing something different is easy to understand. If everyone's going left and you go right, right. okay, you're doing something different. But you actually need everyone to eventually realize they should have gone right, right and go right to end up having everyone else agree with you, to get consensus. And so it's not about always being different because if you're different than everyone else, likely you're wrong, right? What you want is you want to be earlier than everyone else to right. realize a different path is the correct one. And then you actually need everyone else to eventually agree with you. And so I think that's the first is like, just stop caring what anyone else thinks. Um, especially if you have a close group of friends uh, who are successful, mm -hmm. 
what you will find is if all of your friends work in corporate America and you constantly tell them the idea that you want to go solve, they're going to laugh at you. Why are you doing that? Look, I'm making $150,000 working at this company. Right. My company just paid for me to fly to this place. I got points on my you know, Marriott uh, account or whatever dumb shit that they care about. Mm -hmm. But if you fundamentally really, really, really care about solving problems and building companies, then you've just got to stop caring what anyone else thinks. The second thing is the team is so essential. And what I find is that usually there ends up being two cohorts of people. Some people believe this and are really bad at actually picking who that team is. So uh, they pick friends, they pick you know just the first person they found, um, and they don't have the discipline to really try to find world-class people. Or you get the opposite problem, which is that people believe that all they need is themselves and the team doesn't matter. And so those two are wrong. What usually ends up happening is the best entrepreneurs, whether it's early on or some point, you know, within the first year or two, they start to put a team around themselves where every person you meet, you're just like, wow, that is a really, really high quality person, right? That is somebody that I wish I could recruit to come work at one of our companies. And so a lot of times um, the way when I, I meet a founder, if I can get intros or I can meet some people on the team, one of the best things to simply do is sit there and talk with them. And after a five, 10, even 15 minute conversation, would I hire this person? If this person was on our team, do I feel like we'd be better suited to go do what we're doing? If the answer is yes, over and over and over again, inside of a company, like you got a bunch of smart people who work hard that are all trying to go after the same goal, they're probably gonna figure it out. The difference is if you walk into an office and you meet a bunch of the team and you're like, that is the most ragtag you know, group right. of idiots that I've ever met, it's probably not gonna work out well. And so I think team is super important. But then the third thing is, uh, there's like what I call uh, blog post founders versus like the actual founders. Right. And the blog post founders are the ones that they go read all the blog posts, right? And then they basically are like, well, I read on the blog post, this is what I'm supposed to do. But it's almost like they tried to take a playbook that someone else wrote for a different situation, a different company, right. and then apply it elsewhere. There are lessons you can learn, right? There are things you can take away. But what I do see the best entrepreneurs doing is ultimately they're just trying to solve the problem, right? It's just, what is the problem? How do I fix it? And so um, there's somebody uh, that I recently talked with. Uh, they worked at a business. I don't want to say what it is. Um, it's a well-known business. Uh, and part of what they do is uh, they need leads from local small businesses. And so this person was working as an SDR. And uh, they got, you know, they bought leads. They had all these databases, all this stuff and everything. And he was sitting there and he was gold on and also got commission on how many high-quality, vetted, qualified leads did he get. And he realized that he could post on Craigslist an ad for the thing that they had. And all of a sudden they got tons of inbound of leads, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? That's a perfect example of somebody who's sitting there and it's a very high degree of agency, right? They're saying the playbook that the company is giving me is one playbook that I should employ. Right. But if ultimately the goal is to get high uh, quality vetted, you know, qualified leads, then there's all these other options I should look at as well. And he found one. And then all of a sudden, guess what happened? In every single market that this company is in, they rolled mm, out the strategy and yeah. use fucking Craigslist to get leads, right? And so that's like a very good example of don't simply just look one step ahead. Really, you know, understand what is the goal? What are we trying to accomplish as a team? And then you can work backwards and understand maybe the thing you've been told to do is actually the right thing to do. Sometimes it's not. Or sometimes you need to do more than just that. And so really thinking from first principles, I think, is an important skill set that a lot of people just don't have. So then with your team and... I guess your brand in general and and the ventures that that you're a part of, how do you approach it? Because it's it's maybe slightly eh, slightly different, but also very similar. Um, when you think about your own scaling, I have almost no executives on our teams. 
I make the person that we're working with on something the CEO. You're in charge. I'm here to coach you, right? I'm here to provide help. I'm here to try to break down walls. I'm here to try to uh, reduce friction. But at the end of the day, you're in charge. Will you give me an example of something? Um, we have a business. Uh, it's a research business called Reflexivity Research. Uh, there's a young man, Will Clemente, who became very popular on, uh, on Twitter. Um, literally, when I met him, he was working at Target. And he was doing like in-store shopping, you know, for yeah. uh, the apps and stuff. And he would sneak into the bathroom to tweet because <laughs> he was trying to build his Twitter account. Yeah. And so I didn't know this when I first met him. And then he eventually told me he's like, literally, I'm like in the <laughs> Target bathroom right now. Um, and so uh, he quit. He went, he worked somewhere else. We kept in touch, kept talking. And, and I think he and I always had this idea to go start uh, a research business. Okay. And so uh, when he was ready to leave, I think a lot of people would have went to Will and said, hey, will you come work at our company? Right, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, uh, hire you. We'll, we'll give you this nice salary. We'll do all this stuff and everything. I said the exact opposite to him. I'm not going to give you this huge salary and, and, and kind of all these perks. I'm not even going to try to really recruit you. If you want to own your own business and control your own destiny, I'll put you in business and we'll work together. And the two of us will go build a business. But ultimately, you're the CEO. You're in charge. You got to do the work. And so what ends up happening is that partnership ends up actually giving him an incredible amount of agency, right. but also it gives him accountability. Because if it doesn't work, well, guess what I'm asking? Hey man, why is it not working? Why, why is the person that is working at the company not producing high quality work? Why are we not getting results? What is going on here, right? He is ultimately going to be responsible for the success or failure of that business. Now, my job in that scenario is to do everything I possibly can to reduce friction for him, right? And make sure that he's successful. And so literally, almost on a daily basis, I get on sales calls, right? And I'm literally on the sales call with him, with the salespeople, right, <laughs> doing this stuff. And it, it's not lost on me that in certain situations, if I'm on the call, people take it more seriously, right? right that they're more likely to convert. Um, and so I'm happy to do that. But at the same time, you know, later today, they've got a sales call and I text them, I say, I can't, I can't make it. It, it sink or swim, right? right? You right. guys close this or you don't. Yeah. Um, and they immediately respond and say, yeah, we're on it, right? And, and so I think that's a good example of, um, the world has shifted now where the friction to starting these companies is so small. And I, I really do believe that a huge part of the work that I do on a day-to-day -day basis is just how do I help other people start their own business? And if I can do that, whether it's as an angel investor in tech companies or it's more of these kind of cash flow uh, type businesses where we're you know much more kind of materially involved, in any scenario, I just go back to this idea that entrepreneurship and capitalism are really what change societies, mm -hmm. they change communities, and they change families, right? And so if you look at the American system of capitalism, it is the single greatest system that's ever been invented, and we have built incredible things, yeah. right? How do we get more of those? Because if you go back to our earlier conversation, a huge part of innovation and technology is one solution actually creates more problems. right? And so uh, something I wrote about recently is self-driving cars. Everyone's super excited about this, right? Mortalities with dry, uh, car accidents is very high and it should go down. Mm -hmm. We saw when Uber rolled out the cities, all of a sudden drunk driving uh, accidents and deaths dropped. That's great. Well, with self-driving cars, there's the belief that almost no accidents will happen. What could possibly be the negative side effect of that? Well, organ donation is going to fall off a cliff because one of the biggest sources oh, of wow. organ transplants from is actually from car from, accidents. Wow. So if car accident deaths drop, now all of a sudden we gotta figure out where the fuck are we gonna find <laughs> organs to help people with organ transplants? And so there was a, a story that recently came out where the second ever surgery for a genetically modified pig heart I saw that, was yeah. transplanted into a human body. 
Well, there was a guy, a doctor, he was the one who actually uh, brought it up. He was like, we need to accelerate this right. because the faster that self-driving cars get rolled out, there is going to be a national crisis of organs that are available for transplant. There is no shortage of problems right. that we've got. And every time we solve a problem, new ones pop up. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. And so what we need to do is unlock all of the lost kind of static productivity inside of these big corporations and get people out of those organizations. Twitter fired thousands of people and still is operating. Yeah. Every single major Fortune 500 company could probably fire a material percent of their employee base and be fine. Where are those people gonna go? Well, wouldn't it be amazing if we could somehow empower them to start their own companies, go solve problems, do all this stuff. We could completely transform the American economy. It's just really fucking hard to do it. Now, I'm curious for you as well, because as opposed to some other entrepreneurs, investors, you have a, a big online presence. Was that, what, was that with intention in the beginning um, to grow? And how has the big online presence helped you as an entrepreneur, investor, or just, I guess, general opportunities? Yeah, an insight I had early on was I thought that LinkedIn was shit and Twitter probably was a better place to like meet people because right. it's more about ideas rather than resume. Um, and so I had a bunch of experience helping other people build their audiences, uh, everything from brands all the way up to some pretty well-known um, entrepreneurs. And so I just said, I'd never done it for myself and I'm gonna go do this. And at the time it was really focused on just how do I meet founders for deal flow? Like that was right. it, right? I had no aspirations uh, of like being famous, of any of the uh, kind of other ancillary things that would come. It was just how do I get my name and what I stand for out in front of more founders so that when they wanna raise money, they say, hey, that guy seems right. like someone I should talk to, right? Um, it's not rocket science. Yeah. There's tons of investors like, hey, I, yeah, I'm gonna do that too, right? Um, I think the difference was that it's almost like they went and they talked to like a consulting firm. Like, hey, what should I say? Right, and they had these like prepackaged like bullshit right. things. And instead, when I started, I literally would be in the middle of a meeting with a founder, and if I said something to him, I thought it was valuable to other people, I'd tweet it. If I was on a phone call, I'd tweet it, right? I just started saying, look, this is what I believe. This is literally the truth. If you talk to me behind closed doors, this, this is what I would tell you. And what I quickly realized is like, some of it was unpopular, um, <laughs> but also, people were just scared to say what they really believe, right? right? And, and so a, a great example of this is uh, when I go to dinner, uh, people who, who uh, come to these dinners will laugh because they're just like, of course, he's going to uh, ask the question. If there's anyone new that's there, I always ask them the same question. What's one thing you believe that if you said out loud, you would get canceled? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. And what it really gets at is not just what do you believe in, in, in kind of uh, um, what is that idea, uh, but also what is your perception of what is cancelable right, right. content? And then almost emphatically, every single time they say it, and other people at the table go, I, that's not crazy. Like, yeah, I agree with yeah, that, yeah. right? And so what you end up finding is that it drastically increases the surface area of agreement between people who otherwise are scared that there is no agreement surface area. And so when you start to look at online audience, now I'm much smarter about it, right? I understand the power of it. I understand the downsides of it. But it just comes back to this idea of Warren Buffett was the greatest financial influencer of all time. Like that guy literally is just an influencer, yeah, right? Yeah. And he monetized it by investing. Yeah. But he's no different than Meet Kevin. Right. Warren Buffett and Meet Kevin are the same person, yeah. right? And people are like, what are you talking about? That's crazy, whatever. No, Warren Buffett very early on understood. He talked to the press. Carol Loomis was his girl. Mm -hmm. Talked to her all the time, right? And give interviews to all this stuff. 
He did the annual letters. Like, that's a fucking annual blog post, right? You can call it an annual letter. You can call it whatever you want. But, like, it's a blog post that everyone got really excited about. He holds a festival every year. Like, it, he's created disciples that show up to the Mecca, yeah, yeah, right, in yeah, Omaha. Yeah, yeah. And he walks around, <laughs> and he's being bombarded. He's got security around him. They're taking photos and selfies. And like, like, he is a full-blown influencer. Now, because he's 90 years old, no one wants to use that terminology, right. Right. right? But there's no difference between what he's doing and what people are doing today on the internet. And I always joke that, like, if Warren Buffett was growing up today, he'd have a podcast, yeah. a Substack, a Twitter <laughs> yeah. account, like all this shit, right? And, and so this isn't new. It's not a new idea. And actually, some of the most uh, successful people in the world understood that, and they, and they used their kind of ages, tools to, to be successful with it. What I do think, though, is different today is when everyone can do it, it becomes commoditized. And so you've got to be able to break through the noise, which is much harder. Well, I think also the thing that I, the reason why I started following you just even on whatever platforms a couple years back is there's a lot of just shit. And there's a lot of these entrepreneurs and a lot of these investors and a lot of these XYZ whatevers that they have like the corny tweet. And they have, and they act like they're someone they're not. And honestly, to anybody with somewhat of a pulse, you read right through it, right? Mm -hmm. And what I really liked about you is that, and I'm also very much like a feeling and gut instinct mm -hmm. person, especially when I'm gonna first walk into a situation or first consume a piece of content. By listening to you, and even when you're doing the best business show and stuff like that, I could feel you weren't there to sell some nonsense or mm -hmm. some garbage. Like you had a genuine passion for what you were talking about and you were doing the work and you were researching and you were actually trying to add value to people in whatever ways you could. And I think that the reason why you've been successful in that, let's just talk strictly online, is because I think a lot of people have seen that and they appreciate that. I think the one thing I also thought was interesting, even in my preparations for today, was like, obviously when you go on a lot of the podcasts, people are, they know you as the Bitcoin guy, right? For lack of a better word. like. Honestly, I don't even think that's 1% of what you do. And and quite frankly, I could give a fuck about it. Like, yeah. you know, I think like, I think we talk about Bitcoin for hours. You've done that. Yep. You do it every day. But like what I'm interested in is the person that's in front of me, mm -hmm. right? And how you, how you kind of do the things that you're doing. And then at the end, you are happy, right? Because yeah. that's what ultimately matters. The, the Bitcoin thing is like a fascinating case study to me, right? Um, if anyone was following me before, I don't know, maybe end of 2018, beginning of 2019, tweeting about early stage technology stuff, right? That was my background. That's right. the things I cared about. Um, and I made a very conscious decision. Like there was an opportunity when Bitcoin fell from 20,000 to $3,000. Uh, I got asked in August of 2020 to go on national television uh, and talk about it. And I basically was like, you guys are fools. Like we're buying this thing and it is going to After rip. you're in the fetal position right. on your on your couch. Yeah. No, no, right. no, 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 no. This is way before. <laughs> um, and so if you go back, like one of the things people forget is I think it was in uh, December of 2018, uh, myself and uh, two of my partners, uh, we issued a million dollar bet to anyone in finance, anyone. We will take Bitcoin. You pick any other asset for a decade. We'll put up a million bucks. You put up a million bucks and whoever wins gets both. Not one person answered, no one. And so it goes to show like Bitcoin was at $3,000, right? right? Like at the time people were like, these people are insane, but we understood it. And that's how, why I was able to go on television and talk about it, do all this kind of stuff. And so when you look at it, why did I push so hard into the Bitcoin stuff? It's because I realized that something was gonna be true in the world. Right. People didn't understand it yet. And I knew that no one was going to be able to break through the noise and go and communicate it. 
well, like, I think I did it, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I, like, I think it worked. Um, and so now it's kind of like, there are hundreds, if not thousands of other people who are doing it now. Let them go do it. Like, they're actually better off now doing it than I am, right? right? And so like, I kind of, I did my contribution. It was a very, very small part of that right. entire industry, but I hope it was helpful. I think it was helpful, right? Um, and now there, I see people who I literally was explaining to them Bitcoin early on that are bigger audiences that are you know right. doing this more often. Like it's amazing. And like to me, that's the success. Is like if I had any part in taking my viewpoint and like my my thought process on this, which I learned from the people's shoulders I was standing on, right? right? The people who they had gone, learned it, went around, told people, et cetera. And I was able to help some other people understand it. Amazing. But it's kind of like, you know, if I walk down the street and I ask somebody who sees me, hey, what do you think I think about Bitcoin? Yeah. They're like, I think you like yeah. it, right? <laughs> like it's pretty well understood. And so it's kind of like that challenge was uh, uh, kind of achieved, right? And, and I got there. Now it's that there's other problems that I want to go and, and address and, and kind of do the same thing. And so that's what I'm doing. What, which are at the top of your list right now? I think the single greatest threat to America right now is the fact that we have an economy where the debt to GDP ratio is incredibly high. Right. And regardless of what the citizens desire is, we are gonna continue to pile debt up. And so the only way that we have out of this problem is that we have to increase GDP. Like that's it, right? And if we don't increase the GDP growth rate, we are fucked. Right. And so uh, right now GDP annual growth is actually a little high, right? Like we have bent it up. Uh, if you go back and you look over decades, like it has been trending up. Uh, it used to be like near zero. There was no growth, right? right? Like basically you lived on a farm, your house wasn't connected, you had no water, you had no electricity, you had no anything. And like, you just kind of survived, right. right? Now we produce things, right? We export things, we do, we do all this. And so GDP has been growing, um, usually kind of two, two and a half percent. Recent numbers put it up over 3%, right? Mm -hmm. Which is exciting, um, but we've got to continue to accelerate it. And so uh, it goes back to this idea that if you said, line up every single occupation, what is the one occupation that is likely to have the biggest impact on the world? It's founders, right. right? The people who start these businesses. And I always remind people, everything around you was created by an entrepreneur. The food you eat, yeah. entrepreneur, yeah. right? The, the building we're in, entrepreneur. The subway system I took to get over here, entrepreneur. Right. The government may fund it, but ultimately the government doesn't build shit, right. right? They provide funding, which is an important part of it. But really what they're doing is somewhere, somehow the money is getting into the hands of an entrepreneur and the entrepreneur is building it. And so we just need to drastically increase the number of entrepreneurs and we need to increase the effectiveness of those entrepreneurs. And if you go and you look like, you know, I, I tweeted recently and I was like, well, we didn't get the flying cars yet, right? right? But we have a space manufacturing yeah. system that's up there that's producing drugs, right? right? We literally have um, all sorts of uh, human genome editing that's going on. We have satellites that are circling the earth right now, providing internet access to anyone who wants it. But you just go down the line and you're like, wait a minute. We are actually making tons of innovation progress. That is actually a controversial stance in some circles. Right. And so similar to how people were anti-Bitcoin working, and I was able to identify that position, the asset, and explain to people, no, these people are wrong. This thing is going to actually end up working. And it ended up, at, at one point, it was up 20x from when I started saying that, right. right? So like, I, I, pretty hard to argue it didn't work. Um, I now think that this like anti-tech movement, uh, anti-entrepreneurship, uh, small business owners are being attacked in this country on right. a daily basis from all different angles. Everything from you know uh, activists, uh, customers, activist media, activist government officials, etc. And to stand up and just simply say like, no, this is actually the single most important job in the entire country. 
and be unapologetic about the ambition, about the potential economic impact, and to also sit and say, people who do this job are not the super wealthy billionaires that right. everyone points to that come out of the tech industry. Yes, there are people who do that. But the average small business owner in America, their job sucks, right? They work way too long. Right. They work six, seven days a week. Like they have no life. This is their life. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing it. And usually, I don't know, maybe they make 100 grand, 150 grand. It's a lot of money compared to the average American. But given like an hourly wage, right. Right. it's not really that high. And so if you look at the American economy, small businesses are responsible for 50% of jobs. That's crazy. And so you start to put this all together and you're just like, yeah, like I'm, I'm cool, right? I, I will go say the thing that everyone's thinking that no mm -hmm. one wants to say. And now there's a lot of people saying it, right? Which is good, but right. we need way, way more people to say it. Well, and I think it'll change. I think it's also interesting because, you know, my generation, I felt, you know, for lack of a better word, it is, is soft. You know, in the sense that, like, when you say something like what you're saying, which, if they're real, it's true. But there's a lot of, like, they get butt hurt and they bring emotions into it and this. But on the flip side, though, I think because a lot of people feel the way that I feel, you're seeing a, and, I, and I'm curious to see if you feel this as well, almost a resurgence there's going to be a, a reaction to these to these actions, right? Where there are there is other people on the young side of the like the younger generations that are kind of going more in a traditional old school sense of like work hard, get after it. Your feelings, you know, matter to an extent, but not that much at the end of the day. Go get after it. I'm curious if in the young founders that have had success, you find that to be true or not. Um, it's definitely true. Uh, you can think of it as a pendulum, and the pendulum right. is kind of swinging in the right. other direction, which is a positive. Um, you know, one of the ways that I describe it to people is, uh, there's a book, um, about, uh, the Macmillan family. Uh, so for those that don't know, uh, there's the Macmillan family, family, uh, and the Cargill family, right? And Cargill is obviously one of the, the, these large businesses here in America. Um, and it's owned by both families, but Cargill's name's on it. And the Macmillan family came from Europe. And when they got here, they literally landed in Canada and they went to like, Think of it almost like the general post, like like the, the general mm -hmm. area. And somebody said to him, cool, like walk down this trail, go like, you know, 20 miles, hook a right at the tree, right? right? And you guys get the 200 acres over there, right? That's your spot. When they showed up, there was a fucking piece of land, yeah. right? Yeah. There was no farm. There was no building. There's no anything. Yeah. And literally, they had to build yeah. that from scratch. Now, some people look at that and they're like, well, obviously technology is better. Like I could just mm -hmm. rent an apartment. Yeah. yeah, no shit, right? But the point is that like we live in the safest, most prosperous time in human history. We got right. the easiest lives ever. Like we right. have a cake life yeah, compared yeah. to our ancestors. <laughs> and so when, when you look at that, you're like, okay, what are the problems? And there are real problems, right? There are things that people actually are upset about, should be upset about, tough times, all this yeah. stuff, right? But a lot of, I think, where people kind of reel back and that help the pendulum swing back to kind of this more uh, um, old school way of thinking is when you start to complain about things that are just nonsense, right? right? And it, it really is a society that almost has reached uh, a point where how fortunate are we to care about that, right? Right. And I, I saw uh, an interview with 50 Cent. And they asked him about depression. Yeah, yeah. And it's the most savage shit I ever heard. Yeah. He said, where I come from, no one's got depression. Yeah. That's a luxury belief. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he was just like, people are trying to eat. Yeah. 
And you look at that, and, and, and you know, uh, there's a gentleman, Rob Henderson, uh, yeah. who's got a book that's coming out uh, soon. And uh, one of the key, you know, kind of ideas is this idea of luxury beliefs, right? Is that you are so fortunate and so privileged and so wealthy and so safe that you can believe that. Yeah. Because guess what? There's people who literally live down the street from you yeah. who can't fucking believe that. Yeah. And you they can don't have, have time. <laughs> they yeah, don't well, have the time or the. These like, uh, uh, you know, the safe spaces, all that stuff's yeah. been like highly covered. But yeah. the ones that get me are, um, yeah, look, look at the car unions right now, right? The the car unions, I've, I genuinely believe that the majority of people in those unions, they simply want to go to work, they want to earn a great living, and they want to go home and provide for their families. Like they are hardworking Americans through and through, right? And then what you see is that you've got people who essentially are using them as pawns in a negotiation with a corporation. Right. And they're like, cool, we want a 40% pay raise and we only want to work four days a week. Right. Like, that's their starting point. Yeah. Now, I don't think they actually believe they're going to get that stuff, but, you know, as many people have now covered, it would bankrupt the com- company. And so you get in this weird world where you're like, okay, so you want a four hour, you want a four day work week. Like, sure, that sounds awesome. But if you're getting paid hourly, you actually right. end up making less money if you don't get the pay raise. Like, like it's like a very complex thing. And so when you go and you actually talk to people, and, th- and that's probably one of the best things that I've been able to do is because of the online audience, um, wh- whether I reach out to them or actually I get tons of emails, DMs, uh, people will find me if, if I'm somewhere and, th- and they'll talk to me or whatever. And you find that like some people who are even represented in some of these groups don't agree with the overarching narrative, right? right? They simply wanna provide for their families. And so when you look at that and, and you say to yourself like, man, how could we unleash this? To me, that is, we go from two to three percent GDP growth to five or six, right? right? We go from uh, individuals being statically held up inside these corporations, being unproductive, and you get them out, and they actually are able to make more money, right? One of the stories in media right now that a lot of people don't want to talk about is there's journalists just walking out right. of these newsrooms, and they're going and doing the literally writing the same thing they were just writing. Now they're doing it for themselves, yeah. and they're making four times more money. Yeah. And if you look at the structure of that corporation. The company was making four times what they were paying them, right? right? So if, you know, just use easy numbers. If someone uh, was writing something and the company's making $400,000 in ad revenue off of that, they were paying the reporter 100K. If the reporter walks out, keeps writing, and is able to sell the same ads, they make 400,000. Of course, people are going to do it once they figure out kind of the playbook or how to do it. It's just how do we accelerate that and kind of eat the unproductivity uh, in you know corporate America specifically, but just America in general, and unleash it into this entrepreneurial way. And now we're just gonna take a quick break to talk about my longtime sponsor in US Wellness Meets. They just recently revamped their website, so everything that I'm about to tell you can be found at their all new and improved uswellnessmeets.com website. At uswellnessmeets.com, you can choose from over 350 foods raised the way nature intended. That includes 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, lamb, bison, elk, and dairy. They also have pasture-raised heritage pork, wild-caught seafood, and pasture-raised poultry. These are some of the host of foods that you can find at uswellnessmeats.com where the owners are the actual farmers themselves, and now they've introduced a subscription 
food delivery service, and curated sample farm bundles. Choose the bundle of food you want to receive every month, and they'll deliver it right to your door automatically. It's never been easier to serve your family real, honest-to-goodness food without the junk. U.S. Wellness Meats is the choice of championship sports teams, professional athletes, chefs, world-class trainers, and families just like yours all over America. Use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to save 15% off of every order at uswellnessmeats.com. Now let's get back into it. I'm curious, what do you find, what do you think is your current biggest success to date? I don't think I had anything. Like, it, it, every single thing that I've worked on, to me, is I simply want to help other people or other things be successful, right? And, and so when you ask me, you know, when I did things at Facebook, people would be like, oh, you did this, this, whatever. It's like, not really. Like, I was a product manager. Right, you know, what a product manager is basically a really fancy title for a fucking manager, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, sure, I sat in some meetings, we right. made some decisions, whatever. But like, really, at the end of the day, the product manager probably gets too much credit when things go right, and they probably get blamed too much when things go wrong. Mm-hmm. But that is ultimately what the leadership position is there for on that specific team, right? If you even go look at some of the companies that I've built and things like that, I don't think there's a single company that I've built where I could have done it 100 by myself, right? And you even like, oh, what about the podcast? Like we've had multiple teams work with us, yeah. right? In yeah. terms of content, editing, uh, ad sales, production, yeah. like all this stuff, can't do it. And so with, when you start to kind of switch from, I want to accomplish to at some point in my career, I just said like, how do I make these people successful? Whatever it is, all of a sudden, everything started to work. Interesting. And so th- I think when you ask about like accomplishments, it's more of just like as teams, right? right? We've been able to do a bunch of stuff, but really probably, if I sat down and I was like, what am I most proud of? It's just learning, right? If I look at myself at 25 to 35, a whole different person. Like, damn, what can I accomplish from 35 to 45, right? And so if that is kind of like your internal measure, like I'm fucking winning, right? And, And there's nothing anyone else can do to get in the way because it's ultimately just up to me. Am I learning? Am I improving or not? You also talked about a concept with regards to opportunities kind of experimenting and and i think i don't want to butcher it but more like the gift and the curse is that you're interested in in a bunch of different things there's different ventures you can go on and and kind of and and i and i related to that on a fundamental level too because i feel like i'm at that place in my life right now where i have a lot of different interests business wise things that i'm starting things that are a little bit farther along and trying to understand what's sticking, what's not sticking, where now the knowledge and I guess to an extent the level of experience is an advantage, but then also then converting it into financial success as well. Based on that, what what when you see a young entrepreneur, a young person trying to really figure out what it is that's working or not working, how do you approach it from more of a mentorship or, or coaching level, if you will? Sounds real dumb. I just ask them, right? Is it working? If there's any hesitation, it's not working. Right. Right. It's such a binary thing. Yeah. Um, and it's hard, right? Like I, I'm much better at telling someone else yeah, it's not working yeah, than yeah. even noticing things we're doing. Cause you, cause you see like the light at the end right. of the tunnel. You're like, well, maybe if, you know, uh, this happens, this happens, this happens, the f- sky falls and this happens, right. like then maybe we can make it successful. <laughs> yeah. And cause you're an optimist, you're like, well, there's like yeah. a 1% chance that could happen. <laughs> right. And so you got to sometimes catch yourself and be like, this is fun, like, like objectively not working. Okay, shut it down, move on to the next thing, 
right? And so it, it's an acquired skill. It, it, it takes time and pattern recognition and all that kind of stuff. Um, it helps to kind of predefine, okay, we're going to give ourselves, you know, six months, X dollars, and here's the metric that we have to hit in order to, you know, prove to ourselves this is working or not. Right. Um, and so you can kind of gauge your progress against, you know, kind of an agreed upon uh, framework. But when I sit down with someone, it's just like, is it working? And you can come up with all kinds of crazy charts and graphs and this and that and decks and like what, you can say all kinds of shit. You can be the best salesperson in the world. Right. It's obvious whether it works or not. It's obvious whether people like it or not. And so similar to go back to Warren Buffett, like he does a deal off a napkin in five minutes, right? right? Why? Because there's screamingly obvious deals to do, right. right? If you said to me like, hey, this building was last sold for $10 million four years ago. Today, you can buy it for a dollar. Okay, I'll ask like three or four questions. Like, what's the catch, right? right? right. And, and very quickly, you're going to realize like, yeah, you should probably do it. You don't need a ton of diligence, right? The risk is $1. If everything goes wrong, you lost a dollar. Yeah. The upside is nine million nine hundred. Yeah. you know, whatever, right? And so I think that um, the same thing is true in, in terms of, especially early stage startups. It's like, when it works, you know. You know. And we've almost like over-optimized and we're like, well, uh, the ad ratio or the ROAS or, or my K factor, or whatever. Right. Like, oh, yeah, it, it's helpful to understand all that stuff. But don't lose the binary, like it works or it doesn't work. Because really, that's what really, really matters. What's your your final kind of, because I think the, the the due diligence aspect, especially from an investor perspective, is very interesting. But is there a, a final kind of uh, metric that you look at when you're making that last decision on whether or not you're going to invest or not into something? If it's the first investment, if, if it's later stages of investment or it's a, you know second, third, fourth, fifth investment I'm making in a company, there's a lot of diligence. If it's the first time I'm investing, especially a pre-seed or seed round, right. I do no diligence. Zero. Because every single thing they're telling me is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I'm going to do this. Here's my team. Yeah. Here's the, like, I've literally invested in companies and within weeks, the team, everyone but the one founder is completely different and they're in a whole different industry. There's no amount of diligence that would yeah. have, you know, got at that. And so now I'll talk to them about what are you doing? How are you thinking about it? What, but really what I'm trying to gauge is not their answer. It's how they think, right. right? How do they make decisions? Because what I need to is I need to put money behind someone who's ambitious, right. who's willing to work hard, who can recruit, communicate, uh, sell, et cetera, mm -hmm. but also who can make sound decisions regardless of the situation that they face. And so if you can find one of those individuals, I don't give a fuck what they're working on, right? right? I try to invest. And so... It, it, it's bombastic to say I do no diligence, right? But really what I'm doing is I'm diligencing the person mm -hmm. because that that's the investment. Yeah, I'm not investing in this company, right? I have companies literally that will send us K1 sometimes and I have to go back and talk to them like, uh, what is the company? Like the name of the right. company was something completely different. And now they're doing, you know, doing business as, and it's another name, but on the K1, it may say yeah. the original yeah. LLC name, right? Or, or uh, C Corp name. And it's like, man, how far have we come yeah. that I literally don't even remember right. the original name of the business because we've you know, built something else that works. And so I think that's one. Um, another thing that's really important in terms of the diligence stuff is like understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are, right? right? And so uh, there's a couple of people in my life that uh, I think are much better judges of X than I am, right? Um, and some of it's because I've seen them make a number of judgment calls, right, and be right a lot of times. Uh, some of it is because we've worked together. And so when we face situations, they thought A, I thought B, and they ended up being right, right. almost every time. And so you eventually just kind of build trust in that. Um, 
But if I face one of those situations, I'm not arrogant enough to believe that I have to make the decision. A lot of times, you know, just yesterday I got a pitch from something. It was a commercial real estate. I have a friend. He's very well known in the commercial real estate world. He's super successful. And I sent it to him and I, and I said, I think this is a pass, but I'm an idiot. So like, can right. you look at this? Is there something in here that I'm missing? Because this company specifically has a really big customer, right? Like, like a really well-known customer. And it's like, why is this company using this? Right. And so there's that one single right. piece of doubt in my mind. Mm -hmm. So I sent it to him and he basically confirmed everything I thought as the pros, the cons, you know, kind of the potential outcome, all this stuff. But he is a thousand times better right. prepared to evaluate that business than I am. So just use them. Right. And guess what happened? He's like, hey, man, thanks for sending it. That was really cool to look at. Okay. Like my friend's thanking me and he's like yeah. doing work for me. Like this yeah. weird thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I just think that it's like not only the decision making of the person that you're investing in, but also like being aware of where are you a strong decision maker and where are you not? And then being able to build, even as a loose team or a network of people who can help you in those areas, it's helpful. What do you feel like are your weaknesses currently as, as an entrepreneur and that you're actively? Oh, I mean, I'm just the ultimate optimist. Right. And so like, whenever you think about what could go wrong, like, Sure. If I really sit down and you're like, hey, you got to think of this stuff. Yeah, yeah I, I could probably be decent at it. Um, but immediately when someone tells me an idea, I just jump right into like, right. okay, how could you do this? How could you get some traction? How could it scale? Yeah. And what and what if everything went right? Now, that probably lends itself pretty good to investing in early stage tech right. companies, right? right? Um, but like I've looked at a bunch of public companies and, and there's a decently well-known public company that we thought, uh, um, you know, from our family office, we were going to go and, and do something with. And, um, you know, we got pretty close. We did like months of work. And then I just reached out to someone who had sold their business to the company. And I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And then it was like a laundry list of all the risks right. and, and things that we hadn't even really gotten into. Some of it was because it was a public company versus a private company. Okay. Some of it was uh, um, just here's all the things we could do to turn this around, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and so I think really understanding like optimism is this superpower and can really be an advantage, but you gotta be aware of where the downsides are. And again, um, some of my favorite people to talk with are like the like ultimate pessimist. Right. And we'll just debate all along, right? And they're never gonna become optimists. I'm never gonna become a pessimist. But what I'm doing is I'm sharpening and understanding and learning and, and realizing like this thing that I thought no one could attack. Right you think is like the most evil thing in the world. Right. How is that possible, yeah. right? And you start to understand like, okay, the reason why I don't see how someone could attack it is because literally your thought process, your perspective on this is so outlandishly different that I didn't even think anyone could hold that position. But now I've been exposed to it, I understand it, and therefore now I can start to sharpen the way that I think about what are downsides, what are the pessimistic cases. I'm also curious when it comes to working with your wife as well, because right now I'm working on a couple different things with my girlfriend and I'm curious as to how you guys find that, you know, whether you want to call it the word balance thing is overused, but like the, the right working relationship when it comes to working with the person you love and being with the person you love. Mm -hmm. um, so we have like, she has her thing, I have my thing, right? Which I think is important first. So right. it's not like... Uh, we're working on the same company. I have a number of friends who do work with, whether it's, uh, you know, significant other, uh, dating, marriage, whatever. Um, but for us, like, she has her book. She has the profile. Right. I have my stuff. Um, and so it's more so we're helping each other than, like, yeah. one person's the boss, the other one's right. not, you know, like, like any kind of dynamic like that. So maybe that's, like, first and foremost is, like, we never were, like, hey, we're starting a company together. Um, 
also she knows my strengths and weaknesses, I know hers. And so a lot of times uh, I will ask her for an right. opinion when I know, hey, uh, this is probably, I'm entering into one of my weaknesses. A great example that's kind of stupid, but but I think will entertain people, uh, Twitter. Like every once in a while, I, you know, I type one out and I'm like, bang it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, hey, what do you think? And she's like, Nah, that's the put that one in the drafts right and so like i know that like i'm very much the gas in that situation and she's the brakes and she'll even say sometimes like you're right not worth it right right and so like it's helpful to have that kind of balance um at the same time though uh having someone who is ambitious is really important Mm -hmm. because uh she gets it to a degree and maybe maybe she's like all right you can tone it on a little bit but like my level of ambition she also matches right. and therefore she doesn't think it's crazy that i want to do this or that or, or you know whatever um the downside to it is when you go a thousand miles an hour all day long right you know i mean i literally get i don't know 1500 emails a day and 6 6 30 in the morning i just start responding it's like all day before i go to sleep i try to clear out a bunch of them and, and do all this stuff and sometimes you just feel like, man, this is a lot. Yeah. But she'll say to me, like, hey, I miss talking to you. We talked all day. But what she means is like, right. not okay. about yeah. the business bullshit, yeah. right? Like, we are husband and wife. We have a child. Like, we have this whole other life. And so having an understanding between the two of you that, like, when either one of you feels like it's too much business, not enough, like, personal, that there's a way to bring it up without like causing arguments and like, you know, we got friends do all kinds of crazy shit. Um, and then the other person just being like, okay, yeah, like, like right. put everything aside. Like this is the most important thing. And so um, that like takes time and mm-hmm. trust and, and that type of stuff. Um, I don't think anyone should take like relationship advice from me, <laughs> right? I'm, by no means do I, do I think I have some advantage there. Um, but I do notice that like there's little things like that that just kind of help make sure that you, you, you kind of pull back towards the balance. What do you think is the biggest misconception about you? Biggest misconception? Um, I don't. I don't give a fuck what anyone thinks. Like, like it. it it's almost. Did like, you ever care what people thought? Yeah, of course. Like at, at different points in your life, I think you care, and it's not like you care what everyone thinks. It's usually you care what that one person thinks. Right. Right. Who is that one person for you? D- different points at different uh, times of my life. Right. Like you know, when you're in the army, uh, I remember that there was um, a, a a scenario where I was going to be up for a promotion. And there's like this one guy, right? That like I knew was gonna have a say. He wasn't even the only right, guy who has a right. say. But like I knew who the one guy was. And I was like, damn, I like, right. you know, maybe I can like walk by and like, you know, like stand up real straight today. Right, right. <laughs> like whatever, right? But like you can take that example and use it across all these different um, uh, kind of facets of your life. And I think even like in your personal life, right? Everyone's got like that one friend that whether you agree with it or not, or even understand it, like you probably have a mimetic you know, relationship with where like they do something you're like, fuck, I gotta go do something, right. right? Sometimes it's healthy, sometimes it's not. But I think that it's a different person every point of your life. Um, sports team is a good example. Mm-hmm. Like everyone cares what the coach thinks, even if they say right. they don't. Even the guy who's like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. yeah. He controls playing time, yeah. Yeah. right? You better care what he thinks. And so um, I think that's probably something that I, I started to learn is, you know, whenever I go to make a decision, sometimes I ask myself like, you know, who am I trying to impress or like, like, why am I making this decision? Is there somebody else's influence that's playing into it? Um, it's easier to talk about than right. actually to like identify. Right. Um, but, but, but definitely that. And then on, on like the misconception side, like, yeah, I, I really don't care, but I, I would say that most people, because I don't take certain things that I've been involved in in my life and like put it in their face. And I know that because they are surprised when they find out about it. And they're like, why don't you talk about that? Uh, 
I think there's a lot of people who are just like, what's that guy ever done? Right. Perfect. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. Th there's a element of uh, being um, underestimated that's really fucking powerful. Right. And it's weird for me to say right. that because people are like, wait, you, you got all these followers, like yeah, all this stuff yeah. and everything. But um, one of my favorites is always like, people are like, uh, okay, economist. I'm like, yeah. well, I do have an economics degree. <laughs> yeah. you know, okay, sure. Right. Like, whatever. Yeah. Or uh, one time I was talking about geopolitics in the Middle East and the guy was like, what the fuck do you know about geopolitics? <laughs> I'm like, well, I literally went there. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so you like, again, if you cared what they thought, you would like put it in their face, right? right? You you would like kind of uh, uh, constantly brag about it. And to us, I just don't give a fuck, right? And, and I learned that lesson. That, that's not an original idea. Like I learned that from other people who I would meet and I would find this one little detail. I'm like, dude, you're supposed to like be bra like on the front cover of a magazine talking about this. Right. And they're just like, I don't care. And I was like, oh, you don't have to constantly try to take the accomplishments you have and, and like boast about them. Mm -hmm. Actually, you can just like be you, and if you if you legitimately don't care, then that's it. Some people do care, and they should go boast about it, right? Because right. it, it makes right. them happier or, or right. whatever. But I think it's just like who are you, and once you're comfortable in that, like everything else falls in place. When it's all said and done, and hopefully many more years of of happy, healthy life, how do you want people to to remember you and and the legacy that that you live? If you ever think about that, because some people don't. The only thing I care about is that they just say hey, his kids are awesome people. Like, that's it, right? Everything else is, it, it's a game, right? right? And, and maybe that was one of the big insights at some point in my life. I was like, this is a fucking game, yeah. right? Like, I treat it like a professional athlete would treat playing a sport, right? So I'm very serious about it. I, I, I uh, work hard at it. I try to get better. I you know, do all the things that you would do if you're a professional athlete playing right. in the NBA or right. in, uh, NFL. Um, but it's a fucking game, right. right? If tomorrow every business blew up, goes back to the idea like i have a skill set mm -hmm. it would suck yeah right like i have to go rebuild shit yeah but hey that's that's just the cards you're dealt and you got to go and you got to deal with it no point in complaining um but the one thing that like i i spent a lot of time thinking about is um and, and maybe it's because you know we, we've got a young daughter and and um it's like somewhat newer than if you had you know 15 16 year old kids or, or something like that um but i think a lot about like i go and i play the game but then I have to come home and I've got to help raise a family, right? Right, And like that component to me is actually the more important part. Um, how you're measured on that, I'm not really sure. I think it's kind of intuition. Like somebody just meets a kid right. and they're like, even if you don't know the parents, you're kind of just like, all right, the parents didn't fuck this up. Yeah. Or like, yeah. where the where were the parents? Again, goes back like, does it work or does it not? You kind of just know like kids screwed up or kids not. Um, and so like the more we can be on the not screwed up side, yeah. probably the better. Well, I want to thank you for uh, for taking the time. Um, on a personal level, I think, you know, uh, I I admire you for a lot of what you've done on the professional side, but I think it's exactly what you just said, right? It's how are people going to measure you at the end of the day? And at the end of the day, it's the family, it's your child, it's what you're curating at home um, that I also admire you for and, and the ways that you speak about and articulate it. Because I think for the younger generations, right, especially with all the content that's out there, you start measuring yourself to those other people that you think are what they are putting out that they are. And then, but the real stuff that matters is exactly where, where you ended on it, which is at home, right? And it's the people that you love because the rest it could all blow up in your face at any given time. Um, but I appreciate you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. And uh, thank you, man. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And hopefully Andrew will uh, will come over here and do yeah, it too. Fuck yeah. He's not even <laughs> far. Like what the fuck is the issue? <laughs> Thanks, man.